In theory, my dear Herculanus, it is agreed that to speak to others of one's own importance or power is offensive. But in practice, not many, even of those who condemn such conduct, avoid it enough to escape criticism themselves. That's the ancient philosopher Plutarch commenting, beginning an essay, on a matter of absolutely critical importance to any complete gentleman, the art of self-praise. It's something Scipio mastered, and Demosthenes, and Epaminondas, but Cicero, not quite. But why is this topic important? Well, it is good and noble to be seen well in the eyes of others, to have your name ringing in their ears, but even in the digital age, the greatest accomplishments are rarely seen by more than a few people. Praise is the thing that allows you to get credit for excellence, and praise is the process by which we can scale our reputation. But often, isn't it the case that when we need it the most, or even when we deserve it the most, nobody's there to do it for us? So, we are sometimes tempted to do it ourselves. Hello there, friend. Welcome to the Cost of Glory. This is Alex Petkus. A shorter episode today on this problem, which is so pressing and, dare I say, universal, that Plutarch decided to write a whole essay on it. It's called How to Praise Oneself Inoffensively. And I'm going to share a couple of stories and takeaways with you from that essay today. Now, you might notice a slight difference in the sound quality here, and I do apologize, but it is because it's the summer, I'm on the road, we just finished our first Cost of Glory Men's Leadership Retreat, aka the Speak Lead Retreat, in Rome. We spent the whole week talking about the ancient art of persuasion and oratory, and also visiting the city's greatest monuments, where Rome's greatest orators walked, spoke, and died. And if you couldn't make it this year, we're planning to run it again also next year. Dates TBA soon, so stay tuned for that. Uh, But I've been thinking a lot about this topic, self-praise, because we spent a lot of time this week in Rome talking about Cicero and his famous accomplishment in rooting out and stopping the conspiracy of Catiline. And of course, we just finished a series on this right here on this podcast. And this essay of Plutarch, well, I think Cicero could have benefited a lot from reading it. Unfortunately for him, it was written maybe a hundred years after he died. But Plutarch even mentions Cicero in the essay. And I want to begin with that. And here's what he says about Cicero. He says, The Romans again were annoyed with Cicero for frequently vaunting his success with Catiline. But, he's going to contrast an earlier figure, Scipio Africanus. This is the victor over Hannibal, Rome's great enemy from Carthage, he says, but when Scipio said that it ill befitted them, the Romans, to sit in judgment over Scipio, to whom they owed the power to sit in judgment for all mankind, they put garlands on their heads, escorted him to the capital, and joined him in the sacrifice. For Cicero boasted not from necessity, but for glory, whereas the peril of the other, namely Scipio, did away with envy. So Scipio was prosecuted later in his career, and then he defended himself by way of praising himself, and that evoked no envy, whereas Cicero's self-praise did. So Plutarch's point here is that there are some cases where it's allowed and even encourageable 
to praise yourself. But Cicero got a lot of criticism in his life for praising himself, and much of it really did begin with his defeat of the conspiracy of Catiline and his consulship in 63 BC. And it's kind of amazing that his track record of self-praise about this event even begins practically in the very act of it. And I'm going to give you an example here so you know what I'm talking about. And hopefully the context is kind of fresh in your minds. But So this example comes from the third Catalinarian oration, the third of four. The first Catalinarian oration, Cicero drives Catiline, the, the arch-conspirator, away from the city. But his associates are still left in Rome and they're plotting. And But in the third Catalinarian oration, basically... The other conspirators have been apprehended with evidence, and they've just confessed in the Senate. And this was in the, the privacy of the Senate House, and then Cicero gives a third Catalinarian oration before the people of Rome, out in the Forum, to explain what happened in the Senate House and uh, illustrate the guilt of the conspirators. And the third Catalinarian is really some of Cicero's finest storytelling. It's an amazing speech otherwise. But it's marred by passages like this, which comes at the end. And here's the passage. So he's just got done talking about other crises of the state, and he's going to contrast how he's saved the state from this current crisis in an even better way. And he says, Yet all those conflicts were not concerned with destroying the Republic, but with changing it. He mentions Marius and Sulpicius and Cinna and Lepidus and Sulla... And he says, those men did not want there to be no republic at all, but they wanted there to be a republic in which they were the leading men. They did not want to burn this city, but wished to have power in it. Yet all those conflicts, not one of which sought the destruction of the republic, were resolved not by a peaceful re reconciliation, but by the slaughter of citizens. In this war, however, the most important and the most savage within memory of man a war such as no tribe of barbarians ever fought among its own people, a war in which Lentulus, Catiline, Cethegus, and Cassius laid it down as a law that all who could be safe so long as Rome was safe should be counted among their enemies. In this war, citizens, my actions have secured the salvation of you all. Although your enemies thought that only those citizens would remain who had survived indiscriminate slaughter, and only that area of Rome which the flames could not reach. I have preserved both city and citizens, safe and sound. So, and then he goes on here, almost done, but this is kind of egregious. In recognition of such great services, citizens, I shall demand of you no reward for my valor, no signal mark of distinction, no monument in my honor, except that this day be remembered for all time, it is in your hearts that I wish to have set my triumphs, all the decorations of distinction, the monuments of fame, the tokens of praise. Nothing mute can please me, nothing silent, nothing, in short, that can be shared with less deserving men. And on and on. He, you know, he wants them to remember his, his great service to the state, defeating the Catalinarian conspiracy. And so, you know, the broader context is Cicero is trying to anticipate some of his critics here. He knew he was going to get a lot of flack from the populares, the popular party, who were inclined to sympathize with Catiline and the conspirators, at least over the problems that they identified with the state of 
debt and inequality, they were inclined to they were they were going to criticize Cicero if, as consul, he executed the conspirators without trial, as he was planning to do, hopefully, even with the Senate's approval. And, you know, his enemies did eventually whip up popular resentment, and they eventually forced him into exile, eventually. But, you know, Cicero might have ended up in a better position if he had saved up his self-praise for when he was actually attacked in public. You can compare the story here that Plutarch in this essay tells about Epaminondas, and we'll tell the full context of this story in the life of Pelopidas, but we've covered the main background in the life of Agesilaus. So after the Battle of Leuctra, the Thebans are on a rally, and they decide to invade the Peloponnesus, which is the homeland of Sparta. And, well, here's what he says about this affair. Basically, Epaminondas exceeds his term limit as general, and uh, his enemies prosecute him and threaten the death penalty. And here's what Plutarch says. Thus, when the generals were tried... On the charge that they had not returned home at once, on the expiration of their term as Beotarchs, as generals, but had invaded Laconia, Sparta's territory, and handled the Messenian affair, the Thebans came near to condemning Pelopidas, who truckled to them and entreated mercy. But when Epaminondas expatiated on the glory of his acts and said in conclusion that he was ready to die, if they would admit that he had founded Messini, ravaged Laconia, and united Arcadia against their will. They did not even wait to take up the vote against him, but with admiration for the man, commingled with delight and laughter, broke up the meeting. So Epaminondas in his trial, he says, well, yes, kill me right now, as long as you publicly proclaim what I actually did, which was great deeds. So it's it's a kind of self-praise in, in the form of self-defense. And, you know, Cicero also might have learned the lesson from the work of an orator that he himself considered the greatest of all besides himself. That was Demosthenes, the Greek, the Athenian, from several generations early, several centuries earlier. And, and Plutarch spends a lot of his essay on self-praise talking about Demosthenes, and about, in particular, Demosthenes' most famous speech, and that is On the Crown, which was widely considered to be the greatest speech by the greatest orator, and it was Demosthenes' most successful speech. And this speech, we'll uh, cover it more when we get to the life of Demosthenes, but he delivered it toward the end of his career. Essentially, a friend of his had proposed an honorary crown for Demosthenes in an Athenian public assembly. And this honorary crown was for, basically, Demosthenes' career of doing good deeds for the Athenians. And Aeschines, who's Demosthenes' enemy, he takes the opportunity to prosecute that guy who offered, who proposed a crown for Demosthenes, to prosecute that guy for an illegal motion and... Basically, in the trial, he brings up all of the wrongs that Demosthenes did for Athens and tries to kind of character assassinate Demosthenes. But this gives Demosthenes a golden rhetorical opportunity, not only to defend his friend, but to defend his own entire career. So we'll cover the details again when we get to life of the Demosthenes, and we'll look at the speech too. But this this strategy is something that Cicero could have learned from, you know, 
praise of self has a role and a context, but you have to pay attention to when it's appropriate and when it's not going to kick up envy. And when you're in a position of self-defense, that's a that's a great opportunity to praise yourself. Uh, and so this speech of Demosthenes connects to a theme that we've seen again and again in the lives of great men of action in this podcast. And this is the message I want you to take away. It's the importance in your career of having rivals and critics. Think about Marius and Sulla, Agesilaus and Lysander, Eumenes, Sertorius, Pyrrhus, Basically, everyone else we're going to meet in this show, they all have critics and rivals. And there are many reasons to be thankful for your haters. They motivate you. Uh, they're, they're a sign that you're doing something important. But here's another one that we can add. They give you an excuse. They present you with an opportunity every now and then to tell your own story in a favorable light in front of a wider audience who won't resent you for it if you're being attacked or criticized or reasonably defending your reputation. You can even seem to be doing it unwillingly, as, as Demosthenes does. So when you or someone on your team gets criticized, don't tense up. Don't let your blood boil. Calm down. Crack your knuckles and get to work plotting on how you're going to use it to your advantage. That's all for today. Stay strong, stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time.